0: Well, as you take your seats, take out your Bibles, we're getting close. We have one more study here in chapter 27, another one uh, actually two more in chapter 28, and we'll finish uh, the book of Acts. And tonight, our third portion of chapter 27 as Paul finishes this uh, time on the open ocean that ends in shipwreck. And again, as you think on a shipwreck, it's always good to remind yourself that when Scripture speaks of something, it speaks generally three different ways. It can be actual and factual. It can be figurative. And it can also be future. Those are the three general ways that Scripture is normally interpreted. And so as you look at this, this is an actual and factual uh, uh, place where the Apostle Paul is literally going to be shipwrecked, Um, but it really speaks forth into our lives and those things that uh, you and I might find ourselves shipwrecked in, and I think that uh, as the body of Christ, most of us have suffered a shipwreck somewhere uh, on the shores of life, and so would you join me, let's pray, take our time in the words of the Lord. Father, again, we are so grateful uh, for the history that we have here in the life of the Apostle Paul. Lord, for the way it speaks into our lives, even tonight. And we pray that you would minister to us through the wonderful, powerful, majestic, beautiful, and holy word that you have authored by your Holy Spirit. Uh, this author, Luke, wrote these words down pertaining to the life of the Apostle Paul. And we pray that you'd help us to apply them and use them for your glory in our own lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. we picked up last time in verse 25, and remember, this is a continuous story. They're on this journey. Uh, They're traveling through what you would call today, if you were to travel there, if you called up the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute in Massachusetts, or maybe the Scripps Institution here uh, on the West Coast, and you said, you know, if you're going to go to the Mediterranean Sea, and you want to be in the deepest part of it, where would you go? And they would tell you the Ionian Basin. Parts of the Ionian Basin are are a better portion of three and a half miles deep, Uh, so it is true blue water. Uh, This is a a very isolated portion of the Mediterranean Sea. It's that portion that lies between, in essence, Greece and Italy uh, to the south of both of those uh, countries today and, of course, north of the north coast of Africa. And so we've seen the storm. God's allowed the storm to blow, uh, and now we're going to come to the shipwreck portion of it. Uh, but as we turn our attention to verse twenty-five, and it says, "Therefore, take heart, men, for I believe God <clears throat> that it will be just as He told me." In other words, uh, we're gonna we're gonna go down. <laughs> However, uh, we must run aground on a certain island. So tonight, we find them getting to that certain island where this is going to happen. Uh, And it's the island of Malta. And so as we now pick up in verse 27 in a moment, there's some lessons to be learned even from the shipwreck. Just as there were lessons in the storm, there were lessons in the perilous journey, there's also lessons in the shipwreck. And when you think about it, it, it's my own personal conviction, it's my own personal contention that almost no believer, I actually haven't met one when I've sat down and talked with people, that haven't been shipwrecked somewhere. And when you think of shipwreck, well, you know, I don't sail. I haven't been out on the ocean. I've never taken that kind of a voyage. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the shoals of bitterness. Or maybe the rocks of anger. Or perhaps the shallows of lying, not being able to tell the truth. Or maybe the breaking waves of sexual sin perhaps the cliffs of financial stress they just see uh, they seem to you to be impassable it seems like your boats run aground there at the bottom and all you can do is look up you see shipwreck comes in a lot of different ways in people's lives shipwreck can be that place in your own life to where uh, you've been sailing on a very rough journey in life and you find yourself in a place that you didn't choose But the circumstances of the storm have perhaps driven you there. And as the storm has driven you there, you now find yourself helplessly aground in that spot. And all of a sudden you cry out to the Lord. Because it's there that he meets us on the shipwrecked shores. With everything that we have need of. He steps into that situation and begins to minister to us in our deepest times of need. Maybe you've got an unseaworthy vessel of pride or perhaps an impassable coastline of health issues. And while in this case, because Scripture tells us so, we're in verses 25 and 26, this was inevitable. God actually planned This particular shipwreck. So this was actually on God's agenda. Maybe yours wasn't, maybe yours isn't. Maybe yours wasn't inevitable. Maybe you haven't had one yet. But I can almost assure you that at some point in time you will. And you'll be sitting on a deserted beach someplace. Thinking about where do we go from here. And that's where we pick up the story tonight there off the coast of this little island of Malta. And this unbelievably harrowing experience, we're now going to find out some two weeks in the open sea. And oddly enough, as I was doing a little research on that part of the the Ionian basin or the Ionian Sea, um, the, the normal distance of drift, if you just cut a ship loose in that part of the world, uh, and it gets tossed to and fro by the waves. It'll drift about 30 to 35 miles a day. Be driven by the prevailing winds and the current. And so in 14 days, guess how far you'd travel? Uh, about 460 miles, just about the distance from the island of Clouda to the island of Malta. And during this final part of Paul's journey, God's going to demonstrate once again for us this incredible Romans 8:28 principle. Him working together for the good. Those things in our own lives which at the time we don't understand how a storm is going to work out for any kind of good. We think it's going to be the end of us. We we can't get how God's going to use a shipwreck on some place we don't think we're supposed to be. Somewhere we weren't intending to go. We We can't see how God's going to use that for good. But he does. And he's going to do that here in the life of the Apostle Paul and actually all of the over 200 people that are on this ship. Verse 27, here in Acts 27, we pick up now uh, with the remaining portion of chapter 27. And now when the 14th night had come, uh, imagine for yourself what that would have been like. I I don't know how many of you have ever been out in rough seas. I actually have been out in rough seas. Uh, My brother Carl was telling me about when he was he was on an aircraft carrier in this part of the, of the Mediterranean Sea uh, with waves high enough to come up on the flight deck of an aircraft carrier. To give you an idea how tall that is, that's about 90 feet or so from the water line when the ship's uh, fully at sea to the flight deck. That's the top deck, 90 feet pitching down into the waves. That is a whole bunch of up and down. I can't even imagine now being in a wooden ship that's held together with a bunch of cables wrapped around the gunnels of this, this in essence, very large wooden boat. And you've got all these people on it and this cargo. Uh, nobody, by the way, is wearing a PFD. That's a personal flotation device. Uh, nobody is sitting there looking there at the sides of the ship and seeing there's some, you know, there's some rescue rafts there. Nobody has any hope that anything good is gonna happen out of this. And they've been hopelessly adrift in that type of a scenario, starving, probably short on fresh water as well, for two weeks. I don't know how many of you have ever fasted for two days. But to think about doing that for two weeks in a bobbing up and down ship where you think you're gonna die I'm pretty sure most of them were thinking, let's just jump overboard and get it over with. We were driven up and down the Adriatic Sea. So they're being, as the prevailing winds blow them south, they're able to, it, it doesn't say that they never put the sails back up. But they would pull the sails down in the heavy gale so that they weren't destroyed. And then they'd allow themselves to drift. And as soon as there was a reasonable amount of wind, they no doubt would, would tack the ship one way or the other. And they'd try and make headway back uh, against the wind. And, and they were literally driven up and down the Adriatic. And at the same time, they're moving from the east towards the west. And about midnight, the sailors sensed that they were drawing near some land. Now, there's generally only a couple of ways that a sailor can do that out on the open ocean. And the most common one is you can hear the waves breaking. Uh, That's a sign you're near land. And so it may be in the distance. The other is in the moonlight. You can actually see the line of where the waves are breaking. So you can see a white line on the horizon. But the sailors, being sailors, are looking at the horizon. They're listening for those sounds Uh, of a possibility of land because what they want more than anything else is to get off of this ship which is probably 300 feet long or less that has over 200 people on it and they've all been sick for two weeks. Imagine that sight and they're drawing near to some land and he took soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms. A fathom is six feet so it's 120 feet deep. And when they'd gone a little further, they took soundings again and found it to be 15 fathoms. This is fairly shallow water. This is normally what you would expect as you're coming near to land. You would not find that out in the middle of the Ionian Sea. Uh, You you would find it to be maybe 1,500 meters deep in the shallower parts and 15,000 feet deep in spots or three miles. So they're getting close to something. So after this two weeks they're out there bobbing up and down and as they're drifting, uh, the drift would have taken them roughly in the same general mileage as it would take you to reach the island of Malta. And, and if you think about that the island of Malta, had they missed it there's another 700 miles until the next island. It, this, is, this is like miraculous. Miraculous. Because if you look at where Malta is off the end of the coast of Italy, off the southern coast of Italy, off of Sicily specifically, it's this little tiny island. They miss that. Who knows how long? They they undoubtedly would have perished from hunger, unless they could figure out some way to eat wheat raw. Verse 29, Then fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, it says, they dropped four anchors from the stern, the rear end of the ship, and prayed for day to come. Now they're not praying to God. Remember these are largely Greeks and Romans. They're they're praying undoubtedly to the, the Greek or the Roman pantheon so they might be praying to perhaps Neptune or Poseidon if they're Greeks, but they're they're praying. It's like, okay, this is this is a this is an issue here. We can hear the breakers in the distance. Uh, we can we could push forward in the dark, but if we're wrong, we're going to run aground. So we're just going to drop some anchors right here. We can reach the bottom. We're going to stay here until we can see what's going on. And so they do that. And in essence, they, they've lowered a primitive braking device uh, so that it's going to keep the ships from running aground. And I want you to notice something here because it's really important for us as the body of Christ uh, to remember that that there is our part, and there's God's part. Uh, and we need to do our part. Uh, here in this, this particular part of the story, you, you kind of see people actually using their heads. Can I tell you it's okay to use your head? You know, sometimes people get, almost get the wrong impression about just simply doing what seems to be the best thing to do at the time. There's, there's nothing inherently wrong with using the mind that God gave you. And in this case, they're doing about the only thing that they, they can do, and that's we know what's going to happen if we run the ship aground on rocks. We, we can perhaps hear the breaker or maybe see the breaker line in the distance, so they do the right thing by throwing the anchor down. And there's no record here that the Apostle Paul says, no, let's, let's keep going, because God told us to run the ship aground. He's not hyper-spiritualizing it. Can I speak to you for a moment? Please don't hyper-spiritualize things. I talk to a lot of Christians that (laughs) there's an obvious answer, drop the anchors. And they say, well, you know, that's not faith, brother, we'll just keep going. Please don't hyper-spiritualize things. When you know that you can do something that has no inherent wrong in it, It's not sinful, it's not immoral, you you haven't gone directly against the will of God, and it seems to be something that may possibly benefit the situation. It's okay to simply use your head and wait for daylight. And the reason I'm saying that is sometimes the enemy tries to get us all worked up and in a a tither to where it's like we, we need to do something spiritual. So we'll just keep drifting. The Lord tells you to throw down the anchors. Throw down the anchors. You you can wait for morning and then pull them up if you need to. But if you don't do what you do know to do, you can be sure that whatever happens after that is on you and not on God. Because he probably gave you the common sense to say, look, those breakers, that's bad for the ship. Don't hyper-spiritualize things. God's given you a wonderful mind. We're supposed to use it. It's called wisdom the ability to use knowledge correctly. They're in the middle of a squall in, 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 at midnight. They're out, the rain's still blowing. The passengers and crew are doing everything that they can do. And while it's also true, we should never just simply rely on only our wisdom or our skill. Those things can be used of God as well. You don't want to factor God out and you don't want to put your brain on a shelf. The two things can work compatibly. And so it's okay to think about things and then do the best you can while praying for the Lord to do exactly what he wants you to do. Sometimes I I find people, and I I will just tell you, I, I find people that they're basically sitting somewhere in you know they might as well have a robe on, sitting cross-legged, going home, waiting for the Lord to do something in their life. When God's already told them, throw down the anchors. God's already told them, you know. Actually, you know, I'm not going to send you a million dollars in an envelope. You probably need to go get a job. You no, know, your car actually is going to stay on the freeway until you have it towed. It's not going to miraculously show up in your yard. You know, sometimes we have to, to make sure that we're actually not acting so spiritual that we we forget to do what we can do. Do all the things that you can do to humanly fix the problem, provided it's not hindering the work of the Lord, and providing it's, providing it's not an act of disobedience towards faith. But throwing down some anchors is not being disobedient. And the reason I'm saying this, remember that They've already been told, look, this ship is going down. It's just a matter of where. So you could hyper-spiritualize this and say, well, let's just run into the ground and you know, prove God's right. Be careful. Trust God to do his part, but you do yours as well. Verse 30, and as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, so now you, you can see you're, you're starting to get the panic that sets in When when you have people who are knowledgeable, they understand the situation, and and they are now going to act on the opposite side of this. Is where they really have little faith, and so they're going to do the the wrong thing. The sailors are seeking to escape the ship when they had let down a skiff into the sea, and then under the pretense of putting out anchors from the prow. So now they're going; they've gone to the stern—that's the rear end of the ship. They're going to the prow or the bow. The prow was a piece of of lumber generally that stuck out from the front of the ship. It was usually uh, used for depth soundings. People would sit out there and you know throw a, a line with lead weights every fathom, and they would test the water to see how deep it was. Now they're going to go out there, and they're going to let the, sh- the the skiff off there, which is that small boat that, remember, they hauled back on board uh, that they'd been using to, to help tack the ship. It would also be the only rescue vessel that's on the ship. And so they put that out. Well, we're going to set down another anchor. But what they're really trying to do is get off the ship before it goes down. And Paul said to the centurions and the soldiers, so you, you, you kind of have the Navy and the Marines on the same ship right here. And, and you've got the sailors have one opinion of the situation, and uh, Marines, the Marines, maybe the Army guys that are on the ship, because the Navy and the Marines are kind of, you know, they're the same branch of the military basically, though they won't admit to it. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. And the soldiers cut away the ropes of the skiff and let it fall off. And so so Paul's now acting on what he does know from the Lord. He's saying, look, you guys got to stay on board. You want to die, get out there in the in the skiff. Now it seemed like the right thing for them to do. But Paul's discerned their real intentions, so he's using some spiritual discernment here while at the same time, acting on the information in an appropriate way. And so he alerts Julius, the, the, the centurion. And the soldiers now are getting kind of wind of the plot, if you will. Perhaps he felt that God's purposes in this imminent shipwreck included the presence of these seamen. We don't know exactly what Paul was thinking. But you can almost see how God now has put Paul in a position of authority. You know, God has a way of exalting who he wants in leadership. And it's a pretty amazing thing when you watch it happen in real time. Because you have the experts. and You know that an expert actually is defined as a washed up drip under pressure, right? That's an expert. Right? So you, you, got, you got the washed up drips under pressure that are actually in charge. But you have the Apostle Paul, who is the person who's actually now hearing from the Lord and is exercising wisdom. And so he kind of has the best of both worlds. And so people are starting to listen to the Apostle Paul. Remember, he's made some predictions about this, and guess what's starting to come true? The Word of the Lord. They're starting to see that there's something different about this guy, Paul. You're going to find that as you walk with the Lord, you're going to live long enough for people to come back and say, you know what, Jeff, you were right. You did hear from the Lord. I don't even know how many times I've watched this happen in my own life to where I've spoken the word of the Lord to somebody. I gone, you know what? If you stay in that relationship, it's not of God. And if you stay in that relationship, it's going to work out really poorly for you. Because you're doing exactly what God's telling you not to do, and you're doing it anyway. And people are like, oh, I just can't believe you'd say that to me. Well. I'm actually not. The Word of God is saying that to you. Well, I'm just, I'm not going to do that. And I'll say, well, that's your prerogative. You can do whatever you want to do. I'm not here to force you to listen to God, but I'm telling you what God's Word says. Thus says the Lord, in other words. Here's what the Bible actually says. What you're doing is, God has a problem with it. And all of a sudden, you were right. It didn't work. He broke my heart. She broke my heart. There was no commitment in the relationship. I thought it was going to work out because, you know, we actually got an apartment together. Look, any two people can get an apartment together. Married, it does not make you. In love, it does not make you. So my point is, God's starting to make very clear that the Apostle Paul is getting his information from someplace other than the sailing manual. He's getting it from the Lord. Soldiers' plans are derailed. The sailors' plans are derailed by the cutting off the light boat. They're, they're all sitting there now, in essence, stuck with this crazy Apostle Paul who unfortunately for them, has proven to be absolutely correct. They shouldn't have left. They should have stayed on land. They've, gotten out. They've now endured the storm. And so we see how the storms and the shipwrecks are used of the Lord to test our faith. These people, whether they know it or not, are getting a very clear and a very wonderful view of what it takes to live your life by faith. This whole time, the Apostle Paul is sticking to his guns. He's saying, look, God said, I believe that's what's going to happen. And that, in fact, is what's happening. So if you do something else, you're going to suffer the consequences of it. Now, if you stick to the word of God, you will not ever be proven wrong. And you won't have to apologize for it later. Very often, I find people wanting to give other people counsel and they veer off into secular psychology or they veer off into what could be opinion or business advice or they veer off into the emotions of family dynamics or they go someplace other than the word of God and they live long enough to say, you know what, that didn't work out so well. When you stick to what the word of God plainly says, you will never have to apologize for it And you will never be wrong. So if you want a secret to giving people good counsel, tell them what the word says. In essence, Paul actually told them exactly the opposite of what their senses were telling them. They're basically saying Uh, We're going to do it this way because we're going to save our life. And Paul's saying, look, you you think you can find life by ignoring what God said? It's not true. God's already told us what's going to happen. I've already told you what the Lord said. You think you're going to experience death if you heed what God said? That was basically where the sailors, that was where the guys and the, the soldiers were at as well. It's not true. Basically, he was saying, Look, no matter how desperate your situation is, you need to listen to God. And a little secret of, of living, and I can't tell you how many times Connie and I have had to relearn this lesson because I'm a little thick headed. It is far better, far better, unbelievably better to be with God in the midst of danger than to be without God in the midst of prosperity. Infinitely better. Because in one spot, with God, you you have what you actually need. Without God, you can have everything and not have what you need. Stay with the Lord in the ship. If he's going to put it aground, it'll be aground where it's supposed to go aground. If he wants it to go down, no amount of your wrangling is going to keep it from going down. I, I have lost track of the number of times when I've been counseling with people and they'll talk about some situation that apparently has a dire end. And I can look at the situation and I can tell because that dire end is going to come because the whole situation is not of the Lord. And you can see it clearly that God's trying to take this situation and put an end to it. And the amount of time and effort and energy that's spent trying to keep a already dead thing afloat is mind-boggling. Only to eventually have the ship go down. Look, if God's trying to put your ship on a beach someplace, let him put your ship on a beach someplace. He's got a lesson on the beach. He's got a lesson from the shipwreck. If he's not, and you know for sure that the Lord is guiding you someplace else, then by all means, pull up the anchors, unfurl unfurl the sails, and, and start plotting another course. But if God's told you, look, this thing is done, this relationship is over, you've got to give up on this business enterprise, you've already lost your life savings, you keep pouring money into it, And the people you're in business with are not believers and you are unequally yoked to them. I'm watching the ship go down and I know where it's going to go. And, well, I just got to keep it up. No, you don't. Sometimes the best thing you can do is say, God, you need to put this ship on a beach because I need to start over. Verse 33. And as day was about to dawn, Paul implored them all to take food, saying, Today is the 14th day, and you've waited and continued without food and eaten nothing. And again, they were probably rationing. I, I doubt that most of these who were not believers in the Lord were fasting, though it's possible that they were fasting uh, because of the Greek and the Roman gods that they were praying to. Uh, therefore, I ur- urge you to take nu- nourishment, for this is for your survival. Since not a hair will fall from the head of any. Can you imagine? The whole crew is probably about ready to throttle Paul. It's like, what do you mean a hair's not going to come off our head? If mine gets wet, hair's come off my head, so it wouldn't have applied to me. But, but it, he's basically saying, look, you guys are going to be fine. So eat up. It's going to be okay. You're going to need some nutrition to get to the shore. I've got you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. There's a little secret here and I'll just share it with you. I don't care where you are. I don't care how nice the restaurant is. I I don't care where you're eating food. In Jesus' name, it's one of the few times when we actually have a reason to give honor to the God who's provided for everything that we have. And when you're sitting in a restaurant, it does, you you have no idea how many people are watching. And they're going, those weirdos are praying. (laughs) Like crazy people over there, like bowing their heads and everything. Give thanks to God and pray out loud in Jesus' name. (laughs) Amen. Look, the waiter or the waitress will wait. That's why they're called waiters. Waitresses, they can wait while you're praying. No, actually, they're there to wait on your table. But the, the, the point is, look, you're giving testimony that God gave you this food. Paul's saying, look, we're going down. The ship's going to go down, but we're going to survive. I'm going to thank God. They're all thinking like, thank God, are you crazy? But imagine what they're thinking after God gives the the victory to the apostle paul through making it true they all do survive and here's paul they're all flipping out they're going i don't know what he's doing but i don't know if i want to pray that prayer and there's paul over there just thanking god this may be the most nasty gnarly tasting bread on the face of the earth but you've given, you know, and we are going to have nutrition because of it. And he's thanking the Lord for the provision that He's made, in spite of its meagerness. And when they get to the shore, they're going, "Man, I don't know who he was praying to, but that God was listening." You see, because people are going to look at your life, and they're going to see that in you, and they'll go, "I don't know who that God is, but that God's listening." That God showed up. I've never seen that family without want. We need to be bold about our witness. And he does so in the presence of them all. Now, bear in mind, most of these are stone-cold, heathen pagans who in some ways want to kill the Apostle Paul. And he's saying, I don't care. I'm still going to thank God. That's a great attitude to have. Don't care. I'm still going to thank God. Praise him in the storm. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. You see, the voice of experience was telling Paul, look, (laughs) we're going to need all the strength we can get to get through the waters, through these choppy waters, through the surf and through the surf break. It's just like, get some strength. Because once daybreak comes, we're swimming ashore because this ship's going down. And notice how Paul uses this. Do you know that people are watching your life? And God wants to use your life. Your trip to the sandbar, whatever it is, there are people watching your life. To see how you handle your shipwreck. To see what happens to you when you're in the midst of the storm. And you know what they see here in the Apostle Paul's life? They see a man in the midst of the storm whose eyes are fixed on God. They see a man who is about to go down that's confident that God is not going to let that happen. And by the time they get to shore, the Apostle Paul's a pretty popular guy. Because he has had the answers when everyone else's answers were wrong. Because he believed and trusted God and did what God told him to do. And God proves his character. God says, Look, I don't know what to tell you, but the Apostle Paul, my servant, spoke to you, and guess what? What he said came true. You can imagine little campfire conversations that they're going to have because they're going to be stuck on this island for 90 days. They're going to be sitting around the beach going, can you believe it? Exactly what he said came true. Can you believe it? He thanked God for that moldy, yucky bread that we ate before we got to shore. And oh, by the way, when they get to shore, they're actually going to be helped. So Paul's right, and God's using him. And by the way, there's no indication here that Paul was trying to celebrate communion with a bunch of heathens. Being as he passed along communion to the church, and he said, don't partake in an unworthy manner, so he's not going to be you know, asking everybody to celebrate communion when they don't even know what that is because they don't have a relationship with the Lord yet. I think he's just thanking God for being God and for being good. And for providing in the midst of a desperate situation. Verse 36. And then they were all encouraged. And also took food for themselves. You know, people may not know why you pray. But when they see the results of what a praying person's life looks like. Very often they start to look at your life a little differently. It's like, oh, I'm, I'm not sure, but, you know, it's good enough for job. I think I'm going to pray. They may not even know why they're praying, but, but the Lord is working in their lives. Just be a faithful witness when God tells you to do it. These guys were encouraged in a situation where you would think they wouldn't be encouraged at all. And in all, we were 276 persons on the ship. Now, there's been all kinds of arguments. There's no way that 276 persons could have been on any wooden sailing vessel during Roman times. Uh, That now has been completely debunked. And, in fact, there are literally thousands of sailing vessels on the floor of the Mediterranean Sea, Uh, some of them in excess of 300 feet long. The great historian, Flavius Josephus, said that he himself was on an Alexandrian ship that had 600 people on it. Uh, So this is a good size wooden sailing vessel that was designed to haul grain. So it was likely shallow drafted, very wide. It was meant to hold a lot of cargo. Uh, They're researching actually right now. They found these two ships in 2012. Uh, They're on the bottom of the Ionian part of the the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, One of them sits at 1.8 miles down. The other one sits at 1.2 miles down. Uh, One of them is 290 feet long. Uh, The other one's 260 feet long, and they're still completely loaded with cargo. And so they've sent robotic vessels down there, easily could have handled this number of people. So this is not a tall tale. This is quite a possibility, and undoubtedly true. And so when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, they threw out the weed into the sea, so now they're preparing basically to abandon ship. Uh, which, by the way, one of the reasons that they would have done that, this is just good sailing, they're making the ship lighter, so the ship has an opportunity to get into shallower water, it's going to make it closer to shore. The lower it sits in the water, the sooner it's going to go aground. So this is exactly what you would expect experienced sailors to do. So we go, well, that's wasteful. No, it's the right thing to do. If you know you're going down, uh, you want to be as close, as close to the shore as you can possibly be. I don't know how many of you have ever tried to swim through the surf back to shore. Uh, That can be a chore. Unless you happen to have a surfboard, then it's kind of fun. Amen? So they're now doing exactly what you would do. You would jettison the ship, uh, get rid of that, that in essence, ballast, which would have stabilized the ship when you're out in the open sea. But as you draw near to shore, it's going to be a real liability. It will make the ship break up much faster. The heavier it is, as soon as it goes on the rocks, the weight of the, as soon as the ship comes up, a wave rolls underneath it, puts it up on a reef, it's going to break in pieces. And so they're doing what you would expect them to do. Verse 39, and when it was day, (laughs) they did not recognize the land. Yeah, duh, because nobody ever went to where they were at. Uh, They normally were a whole bunch north of where they currently are at the, the island of Malta. Uh, But they observed a bay with a beach, and oddly enough, you do a little Google search, you got your phones out, you can just Google uh, St. Paul's Bay there on the island of Malta, it's still called that to this day. They observed a bay onto which they planned to run the ship if possible. And when they let go of the anchors and left them in the sea, uh, they basically cut the ropes loose. Uh, Meanwhile, loosening the rudder ropes, so... Normally, when you're out at sea and, and you need all hands on deck, you just fix the rudder in a, in a straight position. They, they didn't want to have to worry about which way the ship was being turned by the rudder, so it's been locked in place. Uh, they cut those. They hoisted the mainsail into the wind and made for shore. So now they're basically saying, look, we're going to try and steer this thing. Up to this point, we've been drifting uh, but we're going to actually use the rudder. We're going to put up the mainsail. We're going to try and catch some wind. We're going to be as light as we can. Hopefully, if there's a reef there, we'll be able to make it over the top of it and make it all the way to shore. And so, but striking a place where the two seas met. met. Uh, this is a fairly rare situation, but guess what? There's one on the island of Malta. It's called a Tombolo. Uh, Basically, it's a place where two different tidal structures come together. You have waves maybe from the south or from the north, and they meet together, and it forms a sandbar. Uh, Basically, as as the waves crash into each other, whatever's in them gets deposited right at that spot. Uh, There's one of those on the island of Malta as well. And so there's basically a sandbar. And striking that place where the two seas met. Uh, They ran the ship aground, and the prow stuck fast, And remained immovable and the stern was being broken up by the violence of the waves. What would have happened is that ship went up onto that sandbar. It would have brought the stern of the ship down. So now the the following seas that are behind it are beginning to slam into the back of that thing. It would have been demolished in a hurry. And so the very thing that you would expect to happen has now happened. They've run the ship ashore. Basically this whole time they've been hanging in there. And they're in the midst of this incredibly dangerous situation and and, and they're there's you know they they've been starving and they they can the end is in sight being on the shore without a ship would be much better than what they're about to experience which is they're going to drown and so they're actually probably pretty excited about this whole smashing of the ship to bits thing because at least they can see land and so they begin to strike they strike this underwater barrier this basically a, a giant uh, sandbar if you will fierce waves are striking the, the end of the vessel you talk about an itinerary how many of you have ever you know you've gone on a trip and you've gotten your trip itinerary emailed to you by like you know travelocity or one of those and you look at it and it tells you, here's your flights and here's where you pick up your car and here's your hotel, and oh, by the way, you've reserved a spot at this restaurant. And, you know, you have all these things listed on there. Paul's itinerary was was nuts. I mean, can you imagine? Okay, your trip is 2,000 miles. You're going to be in the open sea with a bunch of crazy people who want to kill you. And then after that, you're going to be storm-driven for two weeks across the open ocean. And oh, by the way, 276 people are going to be throwing up on you. It's like it's like the itinerary from hell. And and, and and yet after all of this, after two weeks of being driven in the sea, they're about to be shipwrecked on the island of Malta, and they're all going, Yay. You see, God has a way of working all things together for the good. Amen? I doubt Paul could see it when he initially boarded the boat in Caesarea and traveled up the coast, up to Sidon and past Tyre and along the coast of modern-day Turkey uh, and and over to Crete and then down to Clouda. And then finally, as he's worked his way across the... He's probably thinking, man, I'm going to kill my travel agent. But his travel agent was God. God had actually put him in this situation. He'd allowed him to be there. He could have gotten him out of prison when he was, he spent almost three years in Caesarea. Somebody could have busted him out. God had already told him, look, you're going to Rome. This is how Paul gets to Rome. That's the whole story here. There's some great lessons that we've learned along the way. Verse 43, 42 actually. And Now I want you to see this. The soldier's plan was to kill all the prisoners lest any of them should swim away and escape. Now put yourself in the Roman army for a moment and recognize that the law of the land, the Pax Romana, the Roman peace and all that it brought gave the authority of death to every Roman soldier. And so if you were given a task and it was to guard a prisoner and that prisoner was facing charges someplace, you would have to face the exact same penalty as the prisoner if the prisoner escaped. So because these prisoners had a death sentence on them, in essence, you talk about having a really bad itinerary, now the Apostle Paul, having made it across this incredibly perilous journey, through the storm and on the shipwreck, is now going to be murdered by the very people that were supposed to take him to Rome, because if he gets away they're going to have to die in his place. Paul's thinking to himself, man, this is just never-ending. Dereliction of duty, they're, they're going to kill me. Their reaction would have been correct, according to Roman law. But the centurion, verse 43 says, wanting to save Paul, kept them from their purpose and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land. And the rest, some on boards, some on parts of the ship, and so it was that they all escaped safely to land. And so once again, there's another faithful Roman centurion that steps into the situation. These captains of a hundred that uh, constantly are seemingly in view, not only here in the book of Acts, but really uh, throughout the history of the church, there always seemed to be kind of that one centurion that was willing to do the right thing. And no prisoners escaped. And God God knew what was going to happen. I mean, where are they going to go? Uh, pull out a map when you get home and look at the island of Malta relative to Sicily, the end of the Italian mainland, the Italian peninsula, if you will, uh, and look at this little tiny island and go, where are they, they going to swim that? You know, if you look at that 22 and a half miles across the English Channel, uh, the 24 miles or so over to Catalina, you know, people try and swim that, they die. Uh, it, it's, it's a whole lot further than that from Malta to Sicily. And if you're talking about Africa, you're talking about 240 miles. So the only place they can go is to that island, and surely God knew that. Well, culturally speaking, it's kind of an interesting thing, but Paul... Uh, is on this journey with a bunch of Greeks and Romans. Uh, and and here's kind of an interesting little twist on it. You see, the Greeks and Romans believed uh, that <clears throat> if, you were, if you were a Roman, uh, you, you would have believed that Neptune had something to do with this. If you were a Greek, Poseidon had something to do with this. But one of the ways that they tested to see whether you were innocent or guilty of a crime, in other words, you were put on trial, was they hucked you into the sea, and if you survived, you were innocent. So this Roman is actually giving Paul another trial by throwing him into the sea, because if he makes it to shore, he's basically verifying what Paul has already said, which is he's innocent. So he's kind of appealing here a little bit to both the Greeks and the Romans by saying, look, if we make it, does not our gods say that we're innocent if we survive. But if we die, then we got taken by Neptune or Poseidon. And so Paul kind of steps into that place. Remember when he was on the Aragapis, he he, he begins to speak to these guys who were having this uh, incredible conversation about uh, philosophy and he looks and he says who's this god that this, this little niche right here doesn't it that says to the unknown god I want to tell you about the unknown god and so now he's out in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea on this little tiny island Go, I want to tell you about the unknown god because Poseidon let me go Neptune let me go and oh by the way that god I was praying to isn't those two guys it's another way for him to speak into their lives and finally, as we wrap this particular chapter up tonight, there's four things that I think we can get from this uh, really rough journey. And they all begin with the R, so remember you can download these slides from the Internet. You don't have to copy all this stuff down. We've done that for you. The first thing is Paul began this arduous trip to Rome, and it's really going to take chapter 28, it's going to be part of it as well. But there's, there's four good things here. One thing is you've got to recognize the presence of God all day, every day, and in every way. There's no place that you can go, there's no thing that you can get into, no storm, no shipwreck, no perilous journey, no part of life that you are ever outside of God's scope of influence. So you have to recognize that he's always with you. Whether it's a dark time, or whether it's a, you know, a wonderful, glorious time in life, God is always there. You're here tonight, and you're a believer. He will never, not ever, leave you, nor will he forsake you, says the Lord. You have to recognize that. That's a, that's a way of living that you have to consciously uh, make sure that you're implementing. Because Satan's going to try and convince you God's not there anymore. And by the way, I'm not chastising anybody. That's just one of the ways that Satan works. He tries to convince you that God's either not there, or he does not care anymore. Somehow you've ended up on God's naughty, not nice list. You know, God's got a list, and somehow I ended up on the naughty list, so God doesn't care about me anymore. God always cares. He's always there. A second thing, and you see it here, you, you can rely on the people of God. We're going to see how God has people in Paul's life all the way along this journey. Now, it's not all of them. And it doesn't even mean that they're all Christians. But it does mean that God's quite capable of influencing people to come along and be exactly what you need when you need it. So you can rely on him to work in the lives of people. And to bring them along at just the right time. He's going to put them in your life. He uses a Roman centurion. He uses the captain of the guard. He uses the captain of the ship. He's going to use the people on the island of Malta. God's got plenty of resources. And you can rely on God to use those resources, those people. A third thing. Rest and trust in the promises of God. Rest and trust in the promises of God. God made promises to the Apostle Paul as he began this journey, right? I got this. You're going to Rome. However, your ship's going down, but don't worry, you're going to make it. Those are promises. Now, they may not be the kind of promises you want to hear from God. I'd prefer that God didn't tell me I'm going to have a shipwreck, or that I'm going to be in a storm, or that I'm going to have to take a perilous journey. But if God tells you that he's going to do something, for instance, when he promises you that he will not leave you or forsake you, he means that. You can rest in it. When he says he promises to you that all things indeed will work together for the good because you do love him and have been called according to his purposes as a believer, you can rest in that. You can trust him on that. When he says, I know my thoughts towards you, says the Lord, and they are good, they're not evil, but they are a future, and a hope. you can rest and trust in that. So when God tells you something, you can rest and you can trust, even when what your eyeballs tell you is, my ship's going down. The storm waves are blowing my life's coming apart at the seams, you can still rest and trust that God is able to accomplish what he has said he is going to do. He will complete that work that he's done in you unto the day of Christ Jesus. He is able to keep them that are committed unto him. He will not allow the enemy to totally destroy you. You have the same promises Job had. Now you may not want those promises because that promise is nobody can take your life but God. You might get to the edge but you can rest in this. There's only one being in the entire universe that has charge over your life and that's God. For it is appointed unto man one time to die and then judgment. That appointment's made by God. It's not made by Satan. It's not made by some person here on this earth. God's got that in view. Now, you may not like when it is that he calls your number, or someone else's, for that matter. More specifically, when it's someone that you love, you may not really, really may not. You may despise the fact that God has allowed that to happen. But he doesn't make mistakes. You can rest and trust in the promises of God. And the fourth thing is that you can remember the purposes of God. God has a purpose in everything. You have to keep your eyes on the destination. My my bride's been ministering to me the last couple of weeks about keeping my eyes on the destination. You know, sometimes you get your eyes on the waves. Anybody in here get your eyes on the waves? You do the Peter thing? You do the disciple thing in the boat. It's like, it's going down. You have to keep your eyes on the destination. For us, where's the destination? It's heaven, isn't it? It's not earth. It's not the stuff of this earth. It's heaven. When we get our eyes locked in on earth, That's a really lousy view most of the time. But when our eyes are fixed on heaven, we have an eternal perspective to all things. That doesn't mean that we don't do what we can do while we're here. It doesn't mean that everything will be perfect while we're here. But what it does do is say, look, I'm going there, and the one who's promised for me to get there is responsible to make sure it happens. So if he said that I'm going to go from here to there, I can rest in that promise and I can remember this world is not my home. I have an eternal perspective. When you do that, it will give you peace on a perilous journey. It will give you peace in the midst of a terrible storm. It will give you peace when you're about to be shipwrecked. It will even give you peace, as we'll see next, on a fairly deserted island in the middle of nowhere. And it will give you peace to get you to the final destination, which in this case for the Apostle Paul is Rome. So remember these things. Recognize, rely, rest, remember. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Amen? Would you stand and let's Pray, worship team's going to come back out, and pastors are going to come forward, and you know, maybe you've got a storm still blowing. Perhaps you've got a shipwreck, maybe you've got a, a, a shoal of bitterness, or, or perhaps some rocks of anger, or maybe, you know, you, you, you got stuck on the breaking waves of some, some sin behavior. Maybe there's a, a cliff that's some financial hurdle. you don't see how you're going to be able to get around it. You don't know what God's going to do. Awesome pastors up front, they can pray with you over those things. But I can tell you this, if you will recognize the presence of God and rely on the people that God puts in your life to know you and love you and you rest in his promises, you can absolutely remember that God's got a purpose. You keep your eyes on the destination. That journey's going to be a whole bunch easier. Amen? Father, thank you tonight. That these things are true. These aren't a guess on our part. These are truths. We do dwell in your presence. There is no place that we can go that you're not there. Your word declares that plainly. We can rely on those people that you put in our path because they're ordained by you. They're your hands, your feet, your mouthpiece sent by you for our good Lord, in that situation, we, we can rest and trust in those promises you've made to us. And Lord, they're so numerous. There's over 700 of them that are direct promises to us found in your word, Lord. We could spend the next couple of years just focusing on one a day. Lord, you have promised so many things to your people. Lord, it's your grace that set us free. That alone should make us joyful. And God, we can remember that uh, you have eternal purposes and you have an eternal place uh, that we're going to be one day. And so God, we thank you for those promises and uh, thank you that the voyage of Paul still speaks to us some 2,000 years later. Lord, thank you for that. Thank you for the truths contained within your word, those little nuggets of gold in settings of silver, those those wonderful things that were put in motion by the Holy Spirit, Lord, still speaking to us tonight. We love you, we bless you, and we thank you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you need prayer while we're worshiping, playing this last song, let's just come on up and one of the pastors pray for you about that that part of your journey that maybe needs a little extra prayer.